0: All right, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it into the book of Jonah. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can use your order of worship. The text is there. Uh, we are in the second week, and we're going to be here for the next four uh, uh, going through the book of Jonah. Jonah is a small book, four chapters, and we're reading through this, this book. And this story of Jonah is meant to reshape us as Christians. It, asks, it, it, it forces us to reevaluate how we view ourselves, how we view our culture, how we view our God. Um, and one of the ways that the Bible does this kind of challenge, sometimes it just outwardly says it. Right? Sometimes the Bible will outwardly say something. And it'll be like, uh, you know, go and do this, or don't think too highly of yourself, or something like that. Sometimes it's very, very just upfront, and sometimes it's not. Some of the ways that the Bible does this is through, some, is through um, a well-crafted narrative, a well-crafted story. And as I say that, some of us, the hackles go up on the back of our neck because we think well-crafted story and truth are mutually exclusive, right? And by that, what I mean is we think if something is to be accurate, it has to be cold. That is a, that is a presupposition of modernism. It is a, a false dichotomy, um, a narrative can be completely accurate and presented artistically. As a matter of fact, oftentimes, uh, these, like, what we'll find in the stories of the Bible is that they, they speak not just in what they are explicit about, but what they are implicit about. That The, the, the narrator is trying to communicate that truth and that accuracy in a way that grips our imaginations and helps us understand in a way that's not simply didactic and propositional. You are more than ones and zeros. That's just good storytelling. And that's what we see in this book. And so remember what we did see. So last week we saw Jonah, who is God's prophet, uh, fleeing God's call and ultimately God's presence. He's running away from what God has called him to do. And he did so because uh, there's something about God that was pressing on him. And in particular what we said was that God was pressing on Jonah to share in his heart for God's enemies. Jonah didn't want to do that. He didn't want to share in that, so he ran. And we struggle with that for the same reason that Jonah did, I think. Right? Don't we often struggle with the fact, like, we're all fine with grace and mercy. God shows us grace and mercy. Isn't that great? And we are totally undeserving. But maybe a little more deserving than those people out there. Maybe just a little more. Right? Maybe not totally, but maybe we're closer. Right? Right? But what we also saw is that Jonah kept going down, right? That language, going down towards death to escape God's call. But whereas he did that, Jesus went down into death to fulfill God's call, to rescue us, to embody the heart of God for his enemies. And that truth frees us to share God's heart for all who, like us, don't deserve God's grace. And so the story this week continues by challenging us to see that belief, what we actually order our lives by, goes deeper than our words deeper than our profession. As a matter of fact, sometimes what we say and what we believe are two different things. So if you have every place in Jonah, we're starting in verse 7 today. Would you stand in honor of God's word? I'm going to be reading from verse 7 through the end of chapter 1. This is God's word to us. God spoke and his word lays claim on us. It is not something we picked for us. He uses it to call us to him. So let's hear it in that way. And they, that is the sailors, said to one another, come. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the, the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, Let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Would you pray with me? Lord, speak your servants are listening. And if we do not hear from you, we are wasting our time. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and open our ears to hear and receive you. Jesus, as you said, as we heard in your word today, earlier, that when you are lifted up, you will draw all people to yourself. Would you do that now as we lift you up in this place? Whether we are Christian or not, long-time Christian, new Christian, not a Christian, doubter, seeker, whatever, would you draw us to yourself? We ask that you do this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So most of you will know this. I'm a, I'm a musician. Um, I own two guitars. Uh, one of them, I know that they're, neither of them are nice guitars, but I do own two of them. Uh, one stays at my office, one at my house. Um, this past week, I put new strings on my home guitar for the first time in years if you've played guitar, you know that that's, that's offensive, but it's true, okay, for the first time in years. There's a funny thing that happens when you, that, or that can happen when you string your guitar, it happened to me. So you take the strings out of their packaging, they're beautiful, right? They, you got the ones that look like bronze, a couple that look like silver, they're just gorgeous, they're shiny, everything's like nice and new, unlike the old ones that are like dull. And, and you, you pull the little peg out of the bottom, you slip the string in, you press the peg down hard, you put the string into the tuning peg at the top of the guitar, and you start tightening. Right? And the tension begins on that new string. And, and in a perfect world, what happens is that tension tightens and the string tightens up, the pitch rises, and you use a tuner and you get it right in the, in the right pitch that string needs to be. It's a beautiful thing. But then sometimes, like what happened to me this past week, you start tightening that peg, and the tension begins, and the stress increases on that string, and all of a sudden you hear pop, and it breaks. It's brand new. The strings of my old guitar, no, no lie, like five years old, hadn't broke. Brand new string, pop, as soon as I put it on. See, what, what I couldn't see when I pulled those things out is that in, in the midst of all of the beauty, one of them had a fatal flaw. It was like below the surface. The tension of the, of the tuning didn't create it. It was already there what the tension did is it brought it out. The stress brought out the imperfection that was already present in the string. That's what's begun to happen in Jonah's life and does so even more this week as we see Jonah and the sailors respond to what God is doing. You see, what we saw last week, this, this doubt, this uh, anger in Jonah, that God's call to go to Assyria didn't create that in him. The stuff that drove that was already deep in him. It's just that God had never asked such a thing of him before to draw it out. In fact, oftentimes, I think in this story, what we're going to find is that this call for Jonah to go to Assyria is for Assyria. Certainly, it's to Nineveh. Go and see what happens to Nineveh. But it's as much God trying to call Jonah as it is for him to call the Ninevites. So what we're going to see this week is, is three things. That, that outline's in your bulletin, if that's helpful. We're going to look at exposed beliefs. We're going to look at exposed hearts and then exposing us, okay? So let's start with exposed beliefs. Look down at verses 7 to 8. When we left Jonah, when we last left our anti-hero, he was on a boat heading as far away from where God had called him as he could, right? That was the, the main point. Jonah's far away as he could get. And a storm had started. The sailors are hurling things off the deck just like God had Hurled a storm on the sea, things are looking bad, right? And the captain, going down to find more stuff to throw off, found Jonah uh, sleeping in in the boat, and he calls him up. And now he is on the deck with the rest of the sailors, and it says that they begin casting lots to see on whose account this evil is happening. Now, two things about this the first, this issue of casting lots, okay? Uh, Lots are kind of like um, dice. And I know that, like, the idea of, of rolling dice to see whose fault something is is so bizarre to us that we can't even connect to it. But in the, in the ancient Near East, this would have been normal. This was how you um, had your, your God, your deity, kind of speak. Um, and no matter what you think of that uh, particular practice, because they believe that randomness isn't random, that God, there's actually a deity controlling events through providence, uh, and, and so, it, no matter what you think of that practice in general, I'm not, gonna, I'm not suggesting it, you know, next time parents, something's broken in the house, and you're like, alright, you line them all up, go like, okay, who's confessing? Nobody confesses, you're like, alright, I'm rolling the dice, like, you know, don't, I'm, not, I'm not, not saying do that. What I am saying is that whatever you think of that practice, in this case, it comes up gold. Right? In this case, it comes up gold. Jonah, Jonah is actually the one that's at fault. The second thing is that they're seeking someone to blame for the evil that has come upon them. Now, remember last week, if you were here, that that word evil, uh, that Jonah is called by God to go cry out against Nineveh for their evil has come up before him. That that word evil can mean behavioral evil, like what most of us think. Or it could mean uh, something, your, your plight, your trouble. And that with Nineveh, with the, the Assyrians, it probably meant both, first and foremost, their behavior, but our behavior that is evil actually creates for us trouble, creates for us a plight that we are in. And that that meaning was both, that God is, in, God is concerned not only with their evil of their behavior, but the plight that they're in, and that's why he sends Jonah. In this case, the idea of plight comes out more. Jonah has been called to go and cry out against Nineveh because of their evil, but he didn't. And so now an evil is befalling him. Okay? The different meanings are both in play. The peg is being turned. The tension is rising. What are we going to see? Because everyone knows now that Jonah is the reason this is happening. And he is being interrogated as to why. So let's look at the conflicted belief. The sailors start peppering him with questions. Okay? There's a bunch of questions that come out. And he begins to answer them. Or at least he answers one of them. Look at his answer in verse 9. He says, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Okay? The order of what Jonah says is important. It's harder to see in the English. We, we put it out there, but we don't really recognize that this is a thing. Uh, but, in, but in the original here, that, that idea of being a Hebrew is drawn to the front. It doesn't belong there in sentence structure. But it's pulled to the front so that we understand that this is what Jonah thinks is most important. He is a Hebrew. It's his ethnic identification. And it's one that brings with it the idea that he is a privileged member of God's people. It is poignant that he declares his ethnicity before the God that he worships. It's the last question that they ask. But he seems to think it's the most important thing to note. In fact, he doesn't mention anything else. But then he mentions this description of God as the Lord who made everything. And here's why that's important. Remember we talked last week that when you see Lord in all capital letters, that is the name of God that points back to God's um, promise to rescue and reconcile humanity to himself. To save us from our sin. To draw us back to him. And the descriptor as the God of heaven is a term that would have been used during the time that Jonah, the book of Jonah, was being written. In the ancient Near East, to talk about the God of heaven is to talk not about a provincial deity, right? If you're in the ancient Near East and you live in Babylon, you have a god. His name is Marduk. But you know what? Marduk doesn't live in Canaan. He lives in Babylon. He also doesn't live in Assyria. He lives in Babylon. He doesn't live in Rome. He lives in Babylon. Important as we move forward. But when, when Jonah talks about the idea of the God of heaven, it means the supreme deity. He doesn't live in a land. He's the God of everything. He's the God of everyone. And that's how they would have understood it. So Jonah offers up a reason for what's happened. He worships the God who made everything. The God who controls everything. The God who is above all. He says, I fear him. Which is not to say he trembles in fear. Obviously, he's not trembling. Five minutes ago, he was sleeping. Right? So afraid he was of, of disobeying this God that he can sleep in, the, in the, the hold of the ship. What fear means is reverence, worship, honor. Okay? Now here's where this gets interesting. Jonah says he fears the Lord, and that statement causes the sailors, our English translation say, to fear exceedingly. The, the original says to fear a great fear because you can't say that any more than that. Um, and so here's what's going on with the sailors. They're confused as we should be. Because Jonah says, I fear the Lord, the God of everything. And they're like, then why are you disobeying him? If you, if you fear him so much, like if you reverence him, if you worship him, if you honor him, why, why are you running from him? Do you see the discrepancy? See, he's, he's saying he believes one thing. But his actions show something different, don't they? Does he really fear God? Does he really reverence him? Does he really honor him? Does he believe that God is, in fact, supreme? If so, if God is supreme and not just the God over the Israelites, why would you think that you could get in a boat and go the other way and he wouldn't be able to find you? This is a lot like the Christian who talks all the time about grace and mercy, but is far more concerned with their reputation than their actual honesty about their need for grace. See, that's one conflict. But here's another and perhaps a more important one. I said before, Jonah believes that God is supreme. He is the one God. And yet, he's angry that God would send him to Assyria, to those who don't believe. Here's why that matters. Remember what I just said. If you believe that, that the Lord is the supreme deity, there's no other gods, unlike the rest of the ancient Near East, it's not that you would think that, oh, they've got their god over there and that's okay. You believe that's a false god. And what, what they need to do is to worship the one true God. And yet Jonah doesn't seem to care about that. He's fine with God being the God of all... So long, as he main, ...so long as God being the God of all means that he gets to maintain the privileged status of his people. You see that? That's why he says, I'm a Hebrew. That's what I am. That's who I am. That's what I'm about. I'm a part of God's people. So which is it? What does Jonah actually believe? That God is the Lord of all the earth... ...seeking the reconciliation and worship of all on the earth... Or is he just the God of the Hebrews... ...who only gets engaged with those who don't believe... ...when he gets to judge them? Which is it? See, apparently Jonah professes a universal God... ...but then tries to run from a God that can't follow... ...until he does. As we continue, though... ...see that hearts are exposed as well. Look at a conflicted heart in verses 11 to 12. The sailors ask what they should do. Now, that is an understandable question... ...because Jonah... It says that he told them that he was fleeing the presence of the Lord, which means that he also told them his job. I'm a prophet. And if you have a prophet on the boat and you want to find out what God thinks, you should probably ask the prophet, right? So they ask the prophet, What what are we to do? And Jonah gives them an answer. See he's admitted that he's betrayed his God and that they and they want to know what to do, so he says, Kill me. Now, I know that most of our children's Bibles, if you grew up in church, you've got kids, you've read these children's Bibles, and it makes it seem like what Jonah did is he took a nice quick dip, right? Remember the story. They are in a sea that is raging so badly that experienced Mediterranean sailors are terrified for their lives. They have already chucked all the cargo that they were shipping for other people who purchased it. They've already chucked it overboard, they are terrified for their lives. There's no way to say in the original any more that they are any more afraid than what they say. They are terrified for their lives. If Jonah is jumping into the water, he is not expecting to do a couple of doggy stro- strokes, doggy paddle a little bit, and jump back in the boat. He's not expecting to wade this out. This is like a perfect storm. The wave's coming, the boat's heading up, and he's like, just throw me overboard. He's not thinking, oh, I can totally work this out. I'm just going to hang out here for a little bit, jump in the water. And I can tell you, he's also not thinking, don't worry, throw me in. The Lord's going to bring a fish, and I'm going to get swallowed, and I will not be digested for three days. Right? That is not what he's thinking. He says, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. You remember last week when we saw that Jonah was continually going down, and that that was the same language as the Psalms he used to talk about going down into death? Jonah's finally like, I can't get away from this dude. I've been trying to get away. I, I, we need to seal the deal. We need to seal, seal the deal. Kill me. Think about that for a minute. What makes that your go-to? I mean, if you're a Christian in the room, right, and your sin gets exposed, what, what do you do? Like, you repent, right? Like, how about, guys, I got, I'm caught. I got no other, here's what we need to do. I'm going to go pray uh, and ask the Lord to forgive me. Can we turn the boat back around? Can you, can you drop me at the nearest port to Nineveh? I, I, need to, I just need to go. Like, I, can't, I can't run from anymore. No, that's not what he does. The idea of repentance doesn't even seem to cross his mind. His thing is, you know what? You know what? I, I, no, we're not doing that you just need to kill me. Now, here's a couple of things about Jonah that might speak to us uh, that this reveals, okay? Uh, And maybe a couple options. I think both are in play. The first is the possibility uh, that Jonah may have an overall struggle with God's grace. What I mean mean is this. It may be that he thinks, "Here's, here's the God that I worship. I messed up. He wants me dead. So the only way this ends is for me to die. I have got to be judged. I betrayed the God. The God will judge me, so I just need to be judged, right? And this is the perspective we have when you and I tend to believe that God's favor for us is determined by our behavior for him, right? When we believe that God's favor for us is determined by our behavior for him, when we fail him, we, we believe we, we should be judged. And that is, that is what God needs to do to us. And if God won't do it, then I will do it to myself, to myself Right? The second possibility, which is probably likely given what we hear later in the book, is that Jonah, in fact, knows he is gracious. He knows God's gracious. And that is why he would rather die. See, God is asking him to give something up to follow him. He's saying, Jonah, I know you think that as a Hebrew that I am your God and your God alone and that, we will, that I will judge the rest of the world But I'm the God of all. And I'm asking you to give up that privilege status that you think you have. That status you've based your identity on. And Jonah would rather die than do that. See, God has failed him. And so now he's going to exercise that last measure of control he had. He tried to run. That didn't work. He's like, fine. You know what you can't take from me? Mm, This. Throw me in. Until God does take that measure of control away as well. We'll get to that in a minute. And then that leads to changed hearts. Look down at verse 13. This is unbelievable. The sailors won't do it. Right? It says in verse 13, it says, Nevertheless, nevertheless, they, they rode. Look at this. They rode hard. That's, a, that's an interesting way of translating what the original actually says. They were digging to get back. It's like you couldn't... You couldn't row any harder than these men were because they didn't want to kill Jonah. Here are the unbelieving sailors, unwilling to throw away life, and God's prophet going, yeah, 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 whatever. Throw me in. But here's the thing. Jonah is acting the coward in all of this. If, if Jonah was so convinced that, that the way for this to end is a noble sacrifice, why didn't he just jump? Because Jonah is doing what all people with a victim mentality do. They want an out. They want to be able to say, that's not on me. I mean, I had an idea, but I didn't do it. Somebody else did it. I'm not responsible. This This isn't something I would choose. And so he's playing the victim. And the sailors, in response to that, call out to the Lord, asking him not to hold them guilty. Make note of this, Jonah doesn't. Jonah hasn't prayed in this entire book so far. Now, it's only one chapter, but it's a quarter of the book. He hasn't prayed yet. He's in the wrong. How about I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to forgive me, or even you're going to kill me. I'm going to pray that he, he won't hold this against you. No, 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 no. It's not the prophet who prays, it's the non believers. Jonah is completely distant from the Lord. He's turned from him not only vocationally, but relationally too. The unbelieving sailors are the first to call out to the Lord asking for forgiveness. So they throw Jonah in the water. The storm stops, right? Now, I I know that some of us struggle believing that, right? Because we've worked really hard for probably the last 250, 300 years trying to give a naturalistic explanation to everything. But if God really created everything, can't he stop a storm? I mean, would it would it really make it easier to believe if the writer said the low pressure system dissipated suddenly like i i don't i don't think so maybe but maybe for you i don't know but but look at their response to this the sailors who were exceedingly afraid of what was going on now fear the lord exceedingly and offered sacrifice and made vows okay here's what this probably means i mean it could mean that they actually went from pagans ...to being converted to worshiping the Lord. It could mean that. Right? In other words, like sacrificing Jonah... ...literally saved them. Like throwing Jonah overboard... ...and seeing the response literally saved them... ...so they became worshipers of the Lord from then on. It could also simply mean... ...that they were just giving thanks to the Lord... ...for their deliverance and that only. I tend to think the latter and not the former. Uh, But either way... ...what we see is that the hearts of these men... ...are turned towards the Lord... ...because of the way God delivered... Jonah, however, gets swallowed by a fish. Now, remembering the fact that this was originally read by those who hadn't read the whole thing. They didn't know the story. What what you are led to believe at the end of chapter 1 is that Jonah got his wish. Because if you go into a giant fish, and you're in there for three days and three nights, you're not expecting, you may expect to come out, but you're not expecting to come out this way. Right? So in all, for all that we know, Jonah got his wish. And he's dead. The sailors worship the Lord. The Hebrew prophet gets his wish. He entered death rather than obey. Now, let me me speak to how this speaks to us for a second. How it exposes us. Uh, The first way deals with ultimate concerns. See, what Jonah is ultimately dealing with uh, here is something that we all struggle with. It's basing our identity, our worth, our value... Um, uh, what makes us something. Basing that on someone other than God. And the Bible calls this idolatry. And, and it is kind of part and parcel to what it means to be a human after uh, Genesis 3, after the fall, after our brokenness. And uh, it, the, the Protestant reformer John Calvin uh, famously said that our hearts are factories of idols. We just kind of churn them out, right? Like a conveyor belt. Or at least that's the image that we have now. Here's why that's true. You and I were made to find our identity, our value, our our life itself in God. To depend on him for that. But we, we came to believe a lie. And that lie had two components to it. The first was that we couldn't depend on God for that because he wasn't trustworthy. We doubted his good heart. Right? And so... We began to believe that, in fact, instead of seeking our flourishing, that we were made for him instead, that what he's doing is he's holding us back. He's restricting us, right? The idea that God is holding us back is as common an idea today as it ever has been. Right? We see see God as a stricture, something that squeezes us, instead of allows for our freedom. So we think he was holding us back for for his own purposes. But not only that, not only could could we be independent from him, or or rather uh, that we should be independent from him but that we could in other words that we actually had the ability to become like him to be independent but here's the problem with that i mean we we believed it we turned but here's the thing we're made for depend for dependence on something so you and i or uh, Rather, humanity didn't trade in our dependence on God for independence. We traded on our dependence for God for dependence on everything else. Right? And so uh, the, the, one of the New Testament writers, the Apostle Paul, says in his longest letter that we gave up on the creator and trusted in the created thing. Worshipped that. In other words, we took things that were good, because God made creation good, and we made them God. Now, you're probably thinking, some of you at least, are thinking, like, I don't do that, Rick. Maybe it's because you're thinking, I I don't worship any God. Or, you know, you're thinking, like, Rick, I've been in the church my whole life. I worship Jesus. Trust me, he is the only God that I sing to. Um, Listen. I need you to listen, because we do this. When we tell ourselves, I will finally be worth something when... blank. And you fill in the blank with... um, when I find a spouse or when I get that promotion or when I have kids or when I have good kids or or when, you know, my kids behave when I want them to, uh, when, when I have financial security or maybe it's not that, maybe it's, I am worth something because blank, because I'm an American because I'm known as a good person. Because I'm right. Uh, Because I'm part of one race or another. Or maybe it's... um, God loves me because... Like, I'm good. God loves me because I make responsible choices. God loves me because my kids are successful. Or maybe better than that is... God is angry with me and doesn't love me when... I'm not good. I've been irresponsible. When my kids make bad choices. Anytime we do something like this, we need to understand what we are worshipping is whatever we fill in the blank with, and not God. God is simply a tool to get what we really want. We think success or money or acceptance or security or respect will give us wholeness. It will make us somebody. It will make us right And here's what we often do, and we can see this in Jonah's life. Some of us who lean more religious, what we do is we try and bargain with God to actually get those things. Now, we would never call it that. You would never think that, uh, like, outwardly. You'd certainly never tell your small group that, though I I encourage you to do that. Uh, But what we do is we go, okay, God, how about this? If I worship you and I follow you and I give my life to you, you will give me financial security. You will give me success. You will give me a spouse that will never betray me. You will give me uh, the life that I've always wanted. Right? And then what happens when we don't have that financial security? When we've done all the right things and our spouse betrays us, or we turn around one day and we wake up and we say, this is not the life I wanted. What do we do? See, it isn't God you're worshipping. Success, or money, or reputation. And you know that this is true, like Jonah did, when God asks you to give up those things. So how do you know? Because we're often blind to this. So let me give you a good diagnostic that we've, you've probably heard me say before, if you've been here. If not, uh, you can listen to it now. It's certainly something that I, I want us to keep revisiting. What is that thing that if Jesus asked you to give it up to follow him, you're not sure you could do? Like if Jesus is standing at that door and he says, Here I am, I need you to come with me. But to do that, you're gonna have to leave blank behind. Do you do it? Or does death become a viable option? Listen, most of us in this room are in kind of squarely in the middle class, right? What if Jesus called you to poverty? To bring him glory. And so that you might identify with him. And some of you are thinking right now, Jesus would never do that. Wouldn't he? Why not? I'm not sure I'd be okay. I mean, Jesus was. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Lots of other Christians in the world are. What if instead of giving you the spouse you'd always wanted, he calls you to singleness so you can identify with him? Or what if he calls you to glorify how gracious he is by making your epic failures public so that you can't boast in your goodness anymore? All you can boast in is his grace. Would you follow him? Would you follow him? he's standing at the door and he says all you got to do to come after me listen i know it's going to be hard i'm going to be with you but i'm going to need to make some things public do you do it or does death become a viable option i I had a, a counselor counseling professor in seminary by the name of jim cofield is a great man uh and he he said um Often, he said, you know when you're counseling someone, you know when you've reached that place of deepest shame in their hearts when um, death is a viable option to opening the door. Listen to me. When our idols fail us or when we fail them, we need to see that that is God's mercy. Because they cannot save us. And we fool ourselves into thinking they can all the time. You were made for God. God. No amount of money can fill that hole. No amount of moralism can rid you of guilt. I don't care how good you think you're trying. It'll never rid you of guilt. And no amount of acceptance, I don't care how many people love you, will get rid of your shame. You'll simply hide more. Before, however, before you jump too far into this, this passage also helps us see how to leave our idols. And it isn't our working. Because, I, listen, I know, I know most of us in this room... And most of us in this room uh, are, when we hear we gotta leave our idols behind, we're like, okay, you're right, I gotta get it together, and I gotta figure this out. That's not the way even this passage says to do that. The only way you can turn from an idol is if you either believe it can no longer help me, or there's a better option. Because you and I are creatures of desire, and God made us that way. Which is why if you have a awesome Uh, buttercream icing cake sitting in front of you and a rice cake. You won't pick the real cake, right? Because that thing tastes gross. You want what tastes good unless you think, that can't give me what I'm looking for because what I'm looking for isn't taste. It's something else, right? We will always choose what we desire. So listen to me. If you struggle with reputation, if you're like, if you are a reputation manager, you could be, you could start your own PR firm, right? If you could start your own PR firm because of how well you do with this, how good does your reputation have to be before you're convinced that you're enough? How much truth do you have to hide from others? How tireless must you be to maintain it? How many zeros, and I mean in a line, how many zeros need to be in your bank account before you're convinced I'm safe and I'm secure and nothing will harm me now? How many? Six? Eight? How many? How moral do you have to be for you to believe that God can love you? Can you mess up? What happens when you do? You know you do, so what do you do? What happens? Don't you see? These things can't be the answer. Because our problem isn't that we don't have enough stuff. Our problem is that people don't, isn't that people don't think highly enough about us. And our problem isn't that we need to reform ourselves morally. They can't satisfy you. But that, that's not enough. So let me tell you why Jesus is actually better. Because Jesus is the only God who, when you fail him, doesn't ask you to die. He does. He's the only God who, when you fail him, he doesn't ask for your death. He offers you his. He doesn't ask you to pay a price. He offers a price that he paid for you. See, Jonah's sacrifice, in fact, does look beyond itself to a better one. Jonah went into death for three days for the sake of... uh, so so that others might not perish. But also for the sake of his own betrayal of God. Jesus did so... He went into death for three days for your betrayal of God and for mine. And Jonah is thrown into the water to stop a storm. The storm, frankly, of God's anger so that others wouldn't perish. Jesus went and bore the storm of God's wrath so that you and I wouldn't perish. Like, it's actually better. Way better. And here's the best part. Jesus offers this as a gift It's a grace, which means you can't do anything to earn it. And if you can't do anything to earn it, as you hear me say often, you can't do anything to lose it. You can rest. Because he's enough. But what then, right? Let's say you buy all that. And you're like, yes, Jesus is better. I'm going with Jesus. Okay, but then what do you do with these idols? Because we have them. So what do we do with them? Often I'm, uh, you know, I I don't often give super concrete things. I'm going to give you three concrete things this morning, okay? If you deal with three things. If you don't deal with one of these three, you got out lucky this week, all right? So here it is. If you struggle with worshiping money, if you think those zeros are going to keep you safe, can I tell you the best way to fight against that is to get yourself on a percentage giving plan. And it could be to church, it could be somewhere else. But I mean, take out a percentage of your income and go, you know, the the Bible's baseline is 10%. Baseline, not goal. The baseline is 10%. You go, okay, 10%. I'm going to give this. And then it freaks you out. And then keep increasing it over time. See what you can do. See how you can push against that. Because it's the best way to push against that idol. If you struggle with reputation, this week, what I want you to do is I want you to find another Christian who you trust and I want you to confess your sin. And I don't mean I'm a sinner. I mean, here's how I sinned yesterday. Here's what I hope no one will ever ask me. Here's the thing that I don't want you to know right now. It's scary, I know, right? If you struggle with acceptance, and I know, I know, I know some of y'all, I know this is hard for y'all. You're going to think I'm crazy. I want you to intentionally seek to disappoint someone this week. And you're like, what? Rick, isn't that sin? No. My expectations of you are not the law of God. They're my expectations. And oftentimes, if I'm disappointed, i got to deal with it. It has nothing to do with your sin. Now, sometimes it does. Most of the time, it doesn't. And if you're thinking to yourself, I I just can't do it. There's no way I could do that. I, I can't do that. Can I tell you in love, you are worshiping a false god. And it cannot save you. You were made for more. You were made for more than that, and Jesus is better. So no matter what you profess... When that tuning peg starts to get turned and that tension rises, the truth will out just as it did for Jonah. Even if unexpectedly. Would you pray with me? God, as we, uh, as we close this time, I just ask that you would uh, bless, uh, bless us with your grace to expose the idols that we chase and to open our eyes to see their weakness and open our eyes to see the glory of Christ. That we would turn from, the, from idols to the true and living God. And whether that's for the first time, or whether that's for the 50th time, as we consistently kind of keep leaning back towards them, I just pray you would act and show us that, that grace in our lives. You do so for your glory's sake. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.